is a Denver native born of Denver natives. A former Denver chief deputy district attorney, he is now an active Colorado trial lawyer. Bright, independent, and full of fun, he has been part of the media for decades. This is The Craig Silverman Show. What a world, what a life, what a day, Saturday, August 8, 2020. What a show we have for you. It's hard to determine the batting order when you have so many newsmakers. Do you want to go international or do you want to go local? Big news around town on the sports front, the Rockies doing great. Patrick Saunders, Denver Post beat reporter, He's got all the inside skinny. I think I'm going to bat him either number three or number four because there is an exceptional story of perseverance in the Denver news. Former Denver police detective Daryl Sinquana, who's been on my show many times, I've known the guy for decades, he got shot in the early 70s back when I was still in Denver public schools. They caught the guy, but darned if he didn't escape. Daryl Sinquana kept looking for him, and he got found the other day. Daryl Sinquana, one of my guests, don't miss it. Have you heard about Jelaine Maxwell? Right. The girlfriend, the madam, whatever you want to call her with Jeffrey Epstein. Do you know how that case started? A young lady in South Florida walked into a lawyer's office said, I'm getting abused, and so are a lot of girls at this mansion owned by this guy, Jeffrey Epstein. Spencer Coven was that lawyer. He joins me in Craig's Lawyer's Lounge, but he's not alone. We also have Hans Meyer coming up. He is the winning lawyer on a case of Johnson B. Barr. Yes, that bar, Bill Barr. He made big immigration law, as he is prone to do. He's the top immigration lawyer, one of them in Colorado, Hans Meyer, also in Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. It's a heck of a show. Do not miss it. Oh, what a day, what a world, what a life has been led by Denver's super cop, Daryl Sinquana. I read his book, Blue Chameleon. Even before that, I worked with Daryl when he was a famous Denver Police Department detective, officer, you name it, he did it. And I was a prosecutor on the job when Daryl was with the Denver Police. Daryl Sinquana, welcome back to the show. Well, thank you. Tell everybody your badge number. 7014. 1970. I was in ninth grade, and there you were patrolling the streets <laughs> of Denver, Colorado. First of all, when I read The Blue Chameleon, I knew a lot about Daryl Sinquana, but I did not know the backstory, where you grew up, your California, your Colorado, your Boulder County experiences. Just give everybody a little idea about your upbringing. I was born in Pennsylvania. And from there, we went to Riverside, California, where we had a restaurant called The Opinion. I was in second grade, and I had to stand on these crates. My grandmother had me washing dishes, and she was the cook, a little Italian gal that couldn't even speak English. From there, we went to Boulder. We built a restaurant called The Matterhorn. Most of my childhood was done in Boulder. 
Right. And some aviation involved there. Tell everybody about your restaurant in Boulder County and the property you guys had. Yeah, we had this beautiful property that was on a plateau four miles south of Boulder. And we had our own runway and uh, a hangar, our own gasoline. When you took off from our little airstrip, you were a thousand feet above Boulder instantly. That's where I grew up. What an upbringing. And then you write about your misbegotten youth. I mean, you characterize it, Daryl. Were you a good kid, a bad kid? No. How did you ultimately decide to be a cop? I was a wild kid. But why not become a cop? I always said in my next life, I'm going to be a cop just for the vacations and the pension. But (laughs) these days, it's kind of tough to be a cop, Uh, don't you think? Would you still do it? I wouldn't want to be a cop. I am so sympathetic towards them. They have no backing. I mean, you know, these commanders and mayors and uh, governors ought to be ashamed of themselves for not backing their police department. I'll tell you this about Daryl Sinquana. He always took care of himself. And this latest story involving you, Daryl, I was so proud of your effort. I admire perseverance and good detective work. Tell everybody why the whole country is talking about Daryl Sinquana right now. Well, the guy that shot me, his name, his real name is Lawrence Pusateri. He escaped from the state hospital in about 19, I think 1974. He was supposed to get an operation, and he was met with an accomplice with a gun and a gun for himself and a getaway vehicle. They took the, uh, the guard hostage and made their escape. He's been wanted ever since. Well, so let's back, let's back up a, a little bit. Why did this guy, Pusateri, shoot you? What was going on? Where did you get shot? I got shot because I was a rookie cop, and I, I confronted him. He was, at the time, an escapee from the Soledad prison in California, which I didn't know, of course. I didn't know who he was. But anyway, I got into an altercation with him, trying to arrest him and ID him, and he uh, shot me with a gun he had on his, under his shirt. How did he get caught? Well, what time? The this first time? time. After he shot you, did, did you know who he was? Oh. Did you get his ID? Was he arrested right on the scene? don't know. The only ID he had was a social security card with the name of Luis Archuleta. What happened was the crusade uh, for justice took him out of uh, Denver down to Mexico. And he was there until he got into a firefight with the federales and they arrested him along with other co-conspirators. He got a hold of an American consulate and he told them, hey, I shot a cop in Denver. Get me out of here. So anyway, he eventually got out of there because he said he shot me. So we got him back, and he um, he got a nine and a half to 14 sentence. Daryl, was that a plea bargain, or did you guys go to trial? No. No, we went to trial. In fact, Leonard Chesler was the attorney on it, the prosecutor. Everybody knows Leonard. He's a great attorney. You know, then he made his escape from uh, a state hospital, and it, it was suddenly taken out of a movie script. It was so well orchestrated. So that brings you up to that point. So he escaped in 1974. I think it was 74. What did you think when you found out about that in 74? Were you worried he was going to come after you? Or did you think this guy's going to oh, skip no. it? Okay, go ahead. No, he wasn't going to come after me. He wanted to put distance between Denver and him. So anyway, I started looking for him. And I came close one time. You know, I, I had him in San Jose, California and missed him. But I, I kept up my pursuit of him. And what I did, 
what year was that that you almost had him in San Jose? I think it was in the 80s. Okay. While you were still on the job? Yes. Yes. I went on a crusade of contacting all of the, his associates and relatives. I visited, In fact, I visited some of the relatives' homes trying to get help in finding him. This went on and on, and I did most of my work on the phone and calling people, and you can imagine how how I was met you know, when I told my Carol Sunquana. You know, half of them didn't believe it anyway, but nobody helped me. I never got a lead. And, you know, he was on America's Most Wanted. John Walsh came out and did a reenactment. They never got one, you know, credible lead. So anyway, I went on and on for years. And just every so often, I'd think of people to call and just try to elicit some help. On June 24th is when I got the big break. Someone called me, and this person said, I've thought about it, and I'm going to tell you where your guy is. So I wow. got the address, and I got his, his alias. I mean, it's handed to me. I couldn't believe it. And I had talked to this person in the past. Let me get into your great detective mind. What was your theory, that this guy was a jerk, and eventually somebody in his family or his sphere of friends would want to turn him in? I have no idea. I have no idea. But I, I can tell you this. I took the information. I got everything I could on that phone call. I didn't know if I'd ever talk to this person again and verified, corroborated that the house belonged to the wife that he was married to at, the, at this time. He had a driver's license under this phony name, R- Ramon uh, Montoya. He had Social Security. I developed all this information, and then I gave it to Lieutenant Baca of the Espanola P- Police Department. I gave it to him, and he brought in the FBI, this Kyle Markham. And they worked it together, and they did a hell of a job. You know, they had to renew the UFAP warrant, unlawful flight to avoid prostitution warrant. I don't know if it expired or what, but they had to go back to DOJ, the Department of Justice, to get a fresh warrant. They somehow uh, were able to uh, make positive ID. It was my experience from one of my first murder cases that tattoos are best friends of criminal justice system. Right. Because didn't this guy yeah. have tattoos just like he had back when he shot you? Very, very distinctive. But here's what I was going to tell you. I found that he was arrested in 2011 for DWAI. And I got his mugshot on how he looks now. But what was interesting, his fingerprint card was not there. Now, you got to ask yourself, you know, did they have help? Did somebody get rid of it for them? I mean, I have no idea. But it right. should have been there, and that should have been forwarded to the FBI, who would have then compared it, and they'd have found it. They said, hey, this right. is a guy named Lawrence Pusateri. It's wanted for escape. But that didn't happen. So that's that. I thought that was very interesting. I smell another investigation. Why wouldn't they have run his fingerprints through and found out what you did years later. I know. I know they should have. So anyway, I had a, this picture of him, and I mean, you really had to look. He didn't looks nothing like he did when he was shopping. But that head shape was the same. You know, and I told everybody, and I had people say, oh, that's not him. You know, you're going to embarrass yourself and all this stuff. And I said, well, it won't be the first time I've done that. So anyway, they made him. They got the SWAT team and they surrounded that house and went in and got him. 
And were you following it moment to no. moment, sort of like the Osama no. bin Laden operation? I hope they had you on no. a live stream. No, the FBI doesn't do that. You know better. <laughs> what will happen next? Won't he be brought back to Colorado? Are you looking forward oh, to that yeah. day? What are your plans? He's going to be extradited, and I'm going to try to see him. I really would like to talk to him. Maybe I'll give him a copy of my book. It's a great book. I recommend it. The Blue Chameleon, the story of a Denver super cop. Daryl Sinquana did not go quietly through his career. You got involved in one crazy situation after another, but usually involving some bravery on your part. How does this rank up there, Daryl Sinquana, catching the guy who shot you all those years ago? I don't know. Anyway, I've been asked that question, and between this and the bomb plot case, those are probably the two biggest cases of my career. So anyway, I think that this is way, way up there, and I got bragging rights. And you have scars? Tell us where he shot you. How many times, and how did you survive that? Well, I survived, thank God. You know, I'm just glad he didn't stick around and finish the job. But uh, he shot me in the nine ring, which we call the nine ring, a 10 being your heart. It caused me a lot, a lot of problems. Hell, I had to recuperate. Took me, took me over a month, I'd say, to get halfway normal. You are one tough guy. I am so proud of you. I admire your perseverance. I also wanted to pick your brain on what's going on in the world. We touched on it a little, but what were your thoughts when you saw George Floyd? Tell us that. Well, you know, as usual, you know, you get a snippet. But, hey, how about reading the coroner's report? That's all I'll say. Read the coroner's report. Did him pressing on his neck cause his death? I heard that the coroner's report refutes that. Now, I don't know. Maybe you've read it. Well, he had fentanyl in his system, I believe, and there was some resistance. But Derek Chauvin putting his knee on the guy's head when he's saying, I can't breathe and begging for his mama. That was pretty disturbing to me, Daryl Sinquana. What about you? Yes, I wouldn't have done that. And if I was there, I wouldn't have permitted any policeman to do that. I mean, you know, we tried to avoid heat when I was a cop. And that officer is asking for heat, whether he causes death or not. Look at it. Look at the impact it's had on his career, for one. And the three other guys there. I mean, if you would have seen somebody you worked with go overboard, and I bet you did, did you ever intervene and say, no, you're going too far? You know something? We just didn't have cops in that period of time. When I first came on the job, and I wrote about this, there was some very, very brutal policemen working in District 2. It was so bad. My partner was so bad, so confrontational, and loved to fight. And uh, I went to a sergeant, and I wrote about it. And I told him, I said, I can't even sleep. I said, I don't know if I'm going to get rolled up, fired, or what. This guy's beaten up half the people he comes in contact with. But there was a number of people like that. And you know what? The department weeded them out. And the brutality, very seldom did I ever see anything that even come close to brutality during my career. I do recommend everybody buy and read The Blue Chameleon. I predict a future movie about your latest exploits, Daryl. But when you came on the force in 1970, it was 10 years after the burglary scandal rocked the Denver Police Department. Tell us about the evolution of Denver Police through the years you were there. I'd like to think that when I was a 
prosecutor between 80 and 96. I was proud of you guys. Those were the glory days, don't you think? I do. Yeah, there was great policemen, and we did great police work, and we had a friendly competition between all the cops. And uh, I mentioned bragging rights, and, you know, if you made a big bust and got, you know, 40 pounds of dope or something, you had bragging rights. Chase was everything. We, we enjoyed it when we were police. I'll bet you did. What about the current unrest in our cities? What's your attitude about that, Daryl Sanquana? Oh, I'm disgusted. What do you mean? You got mayors and governors and police chiefs that are condoning these alley runners to destroy their cities and burn and loot and do nothing? Think about that. We wouldn't have done that in our day. We got in there and got them. You know, we'd have charged them. We'd have ended it. The first night, it would have been done. They wouldn't come back for more. But they've allowed it. I think it's, it's, it's terrible. Do you get downtown much? I mean, it, it is disgusting what's happened. I try to stay away from downtown. I, I saw their tent city down Broadway and all the graffiti on the Capitol that they haven't cleaned up. And that's disgusting, too. You know, we, we, we were once proud of our city. Now it looks like a cesspool. It looks like a lot of other uh, cities. Have you followed this Elijah McClain case in Aurora? What do you make of that? You know, I really haven't. I really can't talk on it. Wish I could, but I can't. It just seems to me, Daryl, and you worked the job for so many years. Is it appropriate for the police to ever extract any kind of street justice out there? Or is it better to wait for the prosecutors to get involved and uh, let's go through the court system? Because wasn't there a tradition that if you ran from the cops, you were going to take a beating? Absolutely. It was unwritten. And was uh, that right? No. What would you instruct officers to do now? Well, we had the respect of the criminals. You know, the criminals didn't screw with us. I mean, you know, if they wanted to fight, we'd fight them toe-to-toe, wouldn't handcuff them and fight them. We'd, you know, go toe-to-toe with them. And if they wanted to get violent, we'd get violent with them, and they'd go to jail. And, I mean, did we brutalize them? No. No. Now, at the end of a chase, there are people that, you know, got their licks, and that's just the way it was. But was that the right way to go? Did that need to change? At the time, at the time. What about racism? That allegation keeps getting thrown around, especially at police departments. Do you think doing police work ever makes you a racist? No. No. And I'll tell you what, I worked with the finest cops in my 20 years, and I swear I have never seen anybody be racist. Now, if somebody wanted to act like a idiot, they, you know, they go to jail. But I mean, Cops are, you know, they're not really wired that way. They're there to help you and solve crimes and defend you and do all the stuff. And, you know, I didn't meet the racist policemen that they're uh, alleging now. And, you know, there may be racist cops, but I I bet you, what, 1%? Come on, show me all these racist policemen they're talking about. They're not out there. These are good, good people. You have your great perspective from doing the job for so long, and you still identify as a police officer, that's for sure. But I know you as a private investigator, one of Denver's finest. You've done a lot of work on criminal defense matters. How do you reconcile that? Do you see that a lot of people get caught up in the system who maybe should not be? Well, you know, I don't know about that. 
because I met a lot of people that as a private detective and I work criminal defense and, you know, we launch a great defense for them, but they're guilty, you know. Now, have I ever seen anybody go to prison and shouldn't have been there? I sure have. In fact, I wrote uh, the paperwork on these stickups that were in jail for the ponytail bandit that shouldn't have been there because they weren't those bandits that were doing those robberies. So we got them released. But I mean, it happens. You know, people do go to prison that shouldn't be there. It does happen. But please, Terry, they've got the right guy. Let's go back to that guy. I don't imagine it would have mattered what race or ethnicity the guy who shot you was. You were going to hunt him down for the rest of your life. Daryl, in your heart of hearts, what did you think the percentage odds were that you would ever catch the guy who shot you? No, there none. But I had fun trying. And success. I do think there will be a movie about you and your life culminating with this incredible finish. Although you're not finished. Who, who do you want to play you in the movie? I have no idea. I wouldn't know. What about De Niro? He's too old. Yeah, but with that way they can doctor him like they did in The Irishman, he could go back in time and play young Daryl, too. I don't know. He could, maybe. Maybe. You think there's that much makeup? That's part of your book, because there's a lot of exploits. You lived with the handsomest guy on the force, and you write about his exploits. I remember your book, Daryl, even though I read it a few years ago. Tell everybody where they can get your book, The Blue Chameleon. Amazon. You can get it at bookstores, too. I think you have to order them, though. Don't you have to have a new chapter for this latest exploit in your remarkable life? You know, I was going to call the publisher and ask them if I could write a, an ending chapter about this. And uh, I don't know what they would say, but I, I'll find out. You've been on all the news networks around Colorado. Who else is contacting you about this big story? Oh, ABC, I gave an interview to. Inside Edition, I'll be giving an interview to. NBC sent me a text, but I haven't heard from them. I bet you will. Yeah, heck, I'll give them all. I'll give them all interviews. I know you are not shy. And tell everybody just in, in the finish, you gladly accepted that title of a Denver super cop. And you've got a nice ego that goes with being a detective of renown. So what are your thoughts right now for the people of Colorado and the world who are listening, Daryl Sinquana? I admire your perseverance. Well, you got to be persistent. I was always persistent as a policeman. You know, it's, it's just something that good policemen do. And I worked around a lot of good cops. Persistence paid off, and all those stupid phone calls I made, you know, one of them uh, turned out to be the phone call. So what can I say? I'm, I'm, I'm elated. I have a new idea for who should play you in the movie. Are you ready? Sure. Daryl Sanquana playing himself. Oh, yeah. Well, that ain't going to happen. But it's nice of you to say that. You still look like you're in your 30s and you could chase down a criminal, can you? Oh, hell no. You know, when I was a cop, I was good for about one block. Right. But you were good for that one block. And when you caught a guy, how many tussles do you think you got into as a cop? Ooh, not that many, really. You read my book, you'll find out why I wasn't. But I mean, I, I had uh, resistances and whatnot, but not that many for the number of people I arrested. It even shocked me. 
Well, I can't wait to see what you do when Pusateri gets back to town. I'd love to see the look between you two guys. I congratulate you once again, Daryl Sinquana. Thanks a lot for spending time with us. You're welcome. Thank you. Take care, Craig. Daryl Sinquana. Thank you. Bye-bye. Hey there, I'm not going to take a lot of your time. I've been a lawyer almost 40 years. My brother was a lawyer, my father a Denver lawyer, my grandfather a Denver lawyer. If you have a legal problem, call me, 303-861-2800, 303-861-2800. If I'm not the right lawyer for you, I bet I know somebody who is. 303-861-2800, thank you. Gosh, it's hot in here. Did that toaster catch on fire? It wasn't that. You choked on that bite of burnt bagel. Why is everything all red? The heat is unbearable. Where am I? Excuse me, your dishonor. May I step in on behalf of my client? Mr. Silverman, proceed. Tell me one redeeming good thing your client did. He was a faithful listener to my radio show. Not good enough. He had decency and compassion for his family. He did end-of-life planning with Michael Bailey. The Michael Bailey? That is kind to your loved ones. That is smart and way too decent for this place. Your client can go. And what about me, your despicableness? Why should I? Michael Bailey is my lawyer, too. Go on, then. Get out of here. (laughs) Now, part of that was serious, and part of that was fictional. But you will die someday, and if you don't make a legal plan, the government will make one for you. Call my lawyer, Michael Bailey. His rates are reasonable, and he can meet with you and your spouse wherever you want, and on weekends and evenings. 720-394-6887 or online at MB LawLLC.com. Now back to the Craig Silverman Show. Welcome to Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. Wow, what a world, what a life, what a day. What a pleasure to welcome back to Craig's Lawyer's Lounge, Spencer Coven. He's an attorney down in South Florida. Hey, Spencer, how you been? Doing fantastic. Thank you for having me on again. You will recall the last time you were here in the lounge. This is where prominent attorneys come to relax, tell war stories, kick around current events. Last time we had you on, I think we were talking about Bill Cosby, the famous comedian who turned out to be a sexual predator. Remind everybody your involvement in that matter, Spencer. Yeah, that was a crazy matter, and thankfully it ended pretty well for my client. I represented a young lady who had brought a claim against Bill Cosby, and she was actually assaulted at the Playboy Mansion, sadly, when she was just around 18 years old, when Bill Cosby drugged her and raped her while she was there. We were able to bring a case against Mr. Cosby directly, and at the time also against Mr. Hefner when he was still alive. Once he passed away, our case just continued against Mr. Cosby. And between the time when we filed suit and after he got convicted, the case ultimately resolved, thankfully. And now you own the Playboy Mansion in Southern California. Is that right, Spencer? I certainly wish I did. But no, no, no. That was actually bought out by a private investor prior to the lawsuit being filed. Well, I'm glad it ended well. You know, he sexually assaulted numerous women from Colorado. I got to know them well, not as their lawyer, but they were guests on my show. Let's move on to the latest topic. 
Ghislaine Maxwell and Jeffrey Epstein before that. Tell everybody how you got involved in that situation. So I originally got involved in those cases back about 13 or 14 years ago when a young girl who was about, I believe she was around 15 years old at the time, came to my office with her parents and told me a wild story of a wealthy man on Palm Beach Island that had given her money to come over to his home on Palm Beach and perform sex acts on him. And they were devastated and really didn't understand or know what to do. And it sounded rather unbelievable to me. And so I started investigating the case and turned out that it was Jeffrey Epstein. A criminal investigation ensued and Mr. Epstein was ultimately arrested. So I represented what we'll call Jane Doe number one. She was the first one to go to police here in Palm Beach. And I helped her through that criminal process and ultimately represented several young women against Mr. Epstein and the civil cases that were filed against him. Wow. About how far back does that go, Spencer? It dates back to about 2007 when I first started representing the young girls against Mr. Epstein. It was just prior to ultimately what became his sweetheart deal with the federal government and where he was supposedly supposed to be in jail for a year, but actually was getting out pretty much every day and allowed to go back to an office. How did that sweetheart deal happen? It was Alex Acosta who went on to be a cabinet secretary under Donald Trump. I even interviewed him at the White House before he got dismissed, all because of this Epstein matter. I was a prosecutor myself for 16 years. How did it go that way in Palm Beach with Mr. Epstein? Well, it's interesting. Back when we first investigated the case, we thought for sure that Mr. Epstein was going to be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law and thrown behind bars for many, many years. I became close with one of the lead investigators on the case, Joe McCary, who was a top-notch investigator from New York who had actually come down to South Florida and started working for the Palm Beach Police Department. And he really spearheaded that investigation here in Palm Beach. And he had found numerous young girls under the age of 18 that had similar stories to tell about Mr. Epstein, where they had gone to his house and had been sexually molested. So he obviously built uh, what we felt was a very solid case against Mr. Epstein. And he presented it to the state's attorney's office down here. And for some unforeseen reason, the state's attorney's office decided that they didn't want to prosecute it. So he was so upset that he brought it to his chief, and the chief got the FBI involved. And a federal investigation then began, and the FBI investigated and found over 40 young girls that had been brought to Mr. Epstein's mansion here in Palm Beach and had been sexually abused. So they began the federal investigation, and they had an indictment ready to go. And on behalf of the victims, before we knew it, all of a sudden there was a plea deal, and he was pleading guilty in state court to two state charges, and that was it. It was amazing. It was just astounding, and we couldn't believe it. He had quite a team of lawyers. Tell everybody the attorneys who Jeffrey Epstein had working for him on that Florida matter. So he had hired Alan Dershowitz, who he was old friends with from the New York area. He had hired Roy Black, very famous attorney here in South Florida. And he had also retained Ken Starr, formerly of the Bill Clinton prosecution, now working as a civil and criminal attorney 
to lobby the U.S. Attorney's Office in D.C., and then he had also hired a high-profile local attorney here in Palm Beach. Is that what did it? Who do you think was the lawyer that made it happen, and how do you get a sweetheart deal like that? Well, you know, frankly, that's a question that we are still answering now some 14 or 15 years later. We just really can't believe it and don't quite understand why Mr. Acosta's office did what it did and why the U.S. Attorney's Office approved that deal. What I can tell you is on behalf of the victims, we were consistently calling the U.S. Attorney's Office to find out what was going to happen and what was going on. And they kept pushing us away and saying, we can't talk to you about it, and never discussed it with us. And then all of a sudden, this deal came out of nowhere. And then once they entered into the deal, they still wouldn't show it to the victims. And we had no idea what was in the details of that deal. And I had to file motions with the court and not only get a court order, but appeal that order. Uh, And we won at the appellate court level. And we finally got a copy of that deal about a year after it was entered into. Wow. Here in Colorado, we have a victim's rights amendment that's part of our constitution. It gives victims right to be there at critical stages of the proceeding and to have input, but not that their input has to be followed. Do you have anything similar in Florida? Well, it's interesting you say that because there is a federal law that is called the Crime Victims' Rights Act. And uh, on behalf of a few of the victims, a lawsuit was filed in federal court here in South Florida stating that the U.S. Attorney's Office violated the Crime Victims' Rights Act, that federal act. And that case was pending for over four years after his ultimate deal and conviction. And a federal judge here in the Southern District found that the U.S. Attorney's Office, in fact, broke that law when it entered into the sweetheart deal with Epstein. And what was the remedy for the violation? Well, that's a very good question. Unfortunately, one of the things the federal judge noted is that when Congress passed that act, they didn't put a remedy in it. So while the judge could find that they, in fact, violated the act, he was at a loss as to what the remedy should be. Not much justice in the criminal justice system for the victims. What about in the civil justice system? Have you been able to get them a good result, Spencer Kubin? Yes. Thankfully, on behalf of the victims back then, we were able to negotiate certain settlements against Mr. Epstein. And there were still a number of victims that were afraid to come forward while he was still alive. After Mr. Epstein's death, he attempted to shield his assets in a trust in the U.S. Virgin Islands. But thankfully, the U.S. attorney down there seized those funds, and they're now the part of a national recovery program. And there is over nearly half a billion dollars that has been set up into a fund where victims of Mr. Epstein can apply to the fund for a recovery. And I represent a number of victims with respect to claims in that fund. I imagine a lot of the victims have not come forward. Are you online telling them, hey, there's money here. If you can prove a claim, contact me, Spencer Kubin. Absolutely, we have. We've been on TV. We have done interviews like your wonderful show and and to try and get the word out there that I do represent and am representing a number of victims, along with a couple of other very high-profile lawyers here in the United States with respect to claims against Mr. Epstein's fund. And it's important for those victims to know that they will remain anonymous, that their complaint will be confidential, it will be held in the utmost of secrecy. 
and that there is a fund available to help pay for any damages that they may have suffered at the hands of Mr. Epstein, Glenn Maxwell, or any of his other potential recruiters, as we call them. How would somebody get a hold of you, Spencer? It's very easy. All they have to do is dial 1-800-GOLD-LAW. That's 1-800-G-O-L-D-L-A-W. And just explain that they are a victim and they are seeking compensation under the Jeffrey Epstein Compensation Fund, and we can help them out. What's important to understand is that fund was established and began about a month ago. It's being administered by the same woman that administered the September 11 Victims Compensation Fund, and she has the ultimate discretion to decide exactly how much any victim will get, and she has been very helpful and very compassionate with the victims, so we're thankful for that. There have been so many lawyers involved in the Jeffrey Epstein matter, but only one of them that I know predicted a certain dire outcome when Jeffrey Epstein was arrested. Tell everybody your prediction when Epstein got arrested and how you doubled down on it when Maxwell just got arrested. Yeah, that's very true. Very astute of you. Yes, shortly after Epstein was arrested, based upon the information that we knew, at the time, and that, and that I had from my investigators, I was pretty confident that there was no way he was coming out of that jail alive. You know, at the end of the day, when asked, I always said, you know, be careful. People should be watching him because I don't think he's going to make it out alive. And sure enough, unfortunately, that held true. I am just as skeptical with respect to Miss Maxwell. She's made it for uh, longer than I had expected. But I don't think that she is someone that will survive long behind bars, whether it be by her own hand or some others. What happened to Jeffrey Epstein? Did he kill himself or do you think somebody killed him? Well, you know, it's a very good question. I think that there is a very, very big question out there that remains unanswered. You know, I deal in facts. Uh, As you, as a lawyer, I'm sure you deal in facts as well. And in dealing with the court system, that's kind of all we have to work with. And the fact, as I know it, is two of the surveillance cameras malfunctioned. The one that was working, they lost the footage from. He was taken off suicide watch days before he supposedly committed suicide. His cellmate was taken out of his block shortly before he supposedly committed suicide. And he was given all kinds of bed sheets and wires and pills inside of his jail cell. Oh, and the two guards that were supposedly supposed to be watching him and checking in on him every couple hours, they coincidentally, quote, fell asleep, close quote, during their shift when he supposedly committed suicide. So I don't believe in coincidences, and I certainly don't believe in that many coincidences. Talk about coincidences. The Attorney General of the United States, who had some control being the top law enforcement officer in America, He had a father who ran a private school in New York who hired a guy who did not even have a college degree to be charismatic math teacher at the private school that he ran. Wasn't that Bill Barr's father who hired Jeffrey Epstein with those lack of credentials? That is true. That is very true and very odd and very coincidental that dating back all the way those many years ago when Mr. Epstein first got his job at the Dalton School, that the now present U.S. attorney, Bill Barr, his father was the one that hired Jeffrey Epstein back then. How do you think Jeffrey Epstein made all that money? Well, you know, there's a lot of speculation about where his money came from. We know for certain 
um, a few things. We know that he had very close ties with Leslie Wexner, who is the gentleman who started and owned Victoria's Secret and The Limited, made millions and millions of dollars off of that brand. And his close friendship with Les Wexner led to Les Wexner actually giving him power over a lot of Mr. Wexner's assets and funds, which I believe Mr. Epstein took whole advantage of and probably stole money from Mr. Wexner. But in addition to that, his close ties with Glenn Maxwell led him to very close friendship, we believe, with Mr. Maxwell, her father, who later supposedly committed suicide by jumping off a boat in the Mediterranean after he was uh, ashamed when it was found that he stole millions of dollars. So we think that maybe some of that money was shifted from Miss Maxwell's father over to Epstein back many years ago. What a character Robert Maxwell was. His daughter, Ghislaine, that's the way you pronounce it. You made the bold prediction. It's been all over the world. You don't think she's going to survive just like Jeff Epstein. Really, Spencer? You think she's going to be killed at any moment? I think that her life is definitely in danger, whether by her own hand or by the hand of others. I can tell you that, sadly, in dealing with criminals over the many years that I've been practicing, like you, I'm sure you've seen that you know, criminals who are accused of abusing children don't survive long in jail. But at the end of the day, I think she also has a heck of a lot of information that she knows about a whole lot of very important people that probably they don't want out there. So it's my belief that I don't think she's going to quite make it out of that jail alive. What was her role, Jelaine, in all of this? I know she got the girls to come over, was a conduit for that. What was she getting in return? Well, you know, that's an interesting question. We don't know. You know, they supposedly were boyfriend and girlfriend for many years, never married as far as we know. We know that he was supporting her financially and giving her a lot of money. But we also know that she was a little bit twisted herself when it came to, you know, her sexual proclivities and what she desired and what she wanted. And we know that she was essentially working as a madam, obtaining women and girls for Mr. Epstein, and would then at times also engage in some of the acts with Mr. Epstein and his young girls, sadly. So do we know if she was heterosexual, homosexual, bisexual? And I suppose we shouldn't talk in the past tense, she's still alive. What what was her sexuality? Was she a pedophile? I think it was probably a little bit of everything that you mentioned. Uh, probably she didn't have a preference one way or the other when it came to gender. But uh, I definitely think that she had a twisted sense of sexuality from young girls to God only knows what. But she, I think, thrived mainly on power and, you know, the power scenario, just like after uh, Epstein did, where she could control and direct and tell people what to do. And, and she, I think, enjoyed that part of it. Speaking of power, let me throw out some powerful names linked with Epstein and Maxwell. William Jefferson Clinton. What, what, do, what can you tell us about his involvement with Epstein and Maxwell? Well, we know for certain that he's flown on his Mr. Epstein's plane on at least a number of occasions. We know that from the flight logs that show that he was on the plane. We don't know the full extent of their relationship or the full extent of whether he's visited his island or whether he had actually partaken in anything inappropriate. But, you know, it just seems odd, the friendships that Mr. Epstein had from many fronts, from Mr. 
President Clinton to President Trump and his friendship with President Trump to his friendship with very numerous actors, famous people. David Copperfield was in his little black book. You know, Prime Minister of Israel was in his little black book. Uh, we obviously Which one? Ehud Omer, was that it? Or I don't want to smear anybody. Probably not Omer. No, it was... Um, the-, the little guy, I think. What was his name? I'll come up with it. But yeah, and we know Prince Andrew. Obviously, that's been one of the most reported names that have been out there right now. Let's go back to Donald Trump. Melania Trump in here and a lot of pictures with Jeffrey and Ghislaine. What's that about? Well, we know that they socialized together on Palm Beach. He, you know, Trump has even admitted that. And we know that they were very close uh, for a time because he was at a number of parties with Mr. Epstein. You know, again, much like Clinton, we don't know the full extent of that relationship, but I'm sure Ms. Maxwell does. And the hope is, at least on behalf of the victims, that Ms. Maxwell comes clean and talks about everything. I'm afraid the Israeli prime minister was Ehud Barak, not Ehud Olmert, who had his own criminal troubles, but Ehud Barak, a military hero. It's hard to say who's guilty of what, like Prince Andrew. Do we know that he was involved? Have you filed any lawsuit against him? I have not, not on behalf of any of my victims. So none of my victims have come forward and implicated him in anything. But we know that there have been victims that have come forward from the Netflix documentary, even as recently as a few months ago. They had interviews with a number of people that actually saw Prince Andrew at Jeffrey Epstein's island in the U.S. Virgin Islands with a very young girl that was under the age of 18 at the time. And so we do know that much. And we know that Prince Andrews visited Mr. Epstein's home in Manhattan, and he, we know that he's been to visiting his island. So, you know, look, where there's smoke, there's usually fire. What about when there's underwear? Can there be sex assault? Alan Dershowitz said, yeah, I got a massage, but I kept my underwear on. Are you buying that, Spencer Coven? I'm not. I'm not. Sadly, you know, Mr. Uh, Dershowitz, I believe, is on the wrong side of history, shall we say, when it comes to Mr. Epstein and his friendships with Mr. Epstein. Unfortunately, he's dug himself a deep enough hole that he thinks he needs to fight to get out of it. But his association with bad people, not only Mr. Epstein, but others over the years, I think has tainted his reputation. And could lead to some blackmail. You will represent the president at impeachment, or do you ever think about that, Spencer? Or is that too much of a conspiracy theory? Well, we'll see. We'll see. It'll be interesting to see how all this plays out. You know, if Glenn Maxwell has the goods on all these older people and, and all these famous people, and she thinks that she can actually trade that information to get a lighter sentence. And I think that we're going to start seeing a heck of a lot more interesting information coming out. Right. And on cue, your dog starts barking. Do you think Elaine, given the opportunity, will she start speaking like that? She may. You know, that, that may be it. The truth shall set her free, so to speak. I know that on behalf of the victims, I don't want to see her go free, but I'm sure that they would be okay with a lighter sentence if she actually came forward with the truth. Who are the prosecutors involved now, and do you trust them? I do. Uh, It's the U.S. Attorney's Office out of the Southern District of New York. The lead prosecutor was summarily forced to step down, we believe, for many different reasons by Bill Barr's office. But now 
he was able to handpick his successor, and she has been very adamant about prosecuting Glenn Maxwell. So, so far, she's been true to her word and uh, has held true and is prosecuting Ms. Maxwell to the full extent of the law. So we're hopeful that that will continue. Right. We're talking about the Southern District of New York that encompasses Manhattan. Donald Trump lived there for the longest time. Don't you worry that Bill Barr interfered once and he can do it again if it gets too close? Well, you know, it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. But I believe that the Southern District of New York is a fairly independent arm of the U.S. Attorney's Office. And, you know, if any office in the United States is free from the heavy hand of the U.S. attorneys out of D.C., it would be that district. So we're we're hopeful. We're watching very carefully and, and hopeful that they will continue. Who is Jelaine lined up for her defense team? That's a good question. I don't know yet. You know, she actually filed a lawsuit down in the U.S. Virgin Islands saying that she didn't have enough money to pay for the prosecution, and she sued the estate of Jeffrey Epstein to be able to get more money so that she could pay for her own defense. Right now, that case is pending in federal court in the Southern District down in the Virgin Islands. So I'm not sure. I'm not sure who can who she can afford to hire at this point, but I, I'm sure we will see. Let's say that she does not get killed or commit suicide. How do you see this playing out? I think ultimately she has enough information that she could trade to be able to get a lighter sentence. And I think that if she was willing to do that, then she will. Otherwise, I think she'll be wearing an orange jumpsuit for hopefully many years to come. You referenced the Netflix special. That was a doozy. Is there anything else you would recommend that we watch or read to understand this situation better? Well, I definitely think that the Netflix documentary was a very good summary of what happened. John Patterson also wrote a book called Filthy Rich that kind of tracks similarly to the Netflix documentary. But after talking to the producers of that documentary with Ms. Maxwell's arrest, they actually may have a part two that is in the works, and that'll be interesting as well. The Netflix special is Filthy Rich, and it is fascinating. What is it about Palm Beach and Southern Florida that attracts these types? Well, Florida is definitely a crazy place. When they shake the United States to the east, all the nuts and fruits end up here, I I guess, in Florida. But at the end of the day, Palm Beach is definitely fascinating just for its pure wealth. I mean, you've got everything dating back to the Kennedy era when he had his compound here, the Southern White House, and now obviously Trump and his house, uh, Mar-a-Lago, here in Palm Beach. It attracts not only the uber-wealthy, but, you know, also the sun and, and just generally Florida attracts a lot of people. I can't help but remember William Kennedy Smith, a night of partying with his uncle Teddy, ended with a, a prosecution of him for sex assault. And Roy Black was his attorney, the same guy who represented Jeffrey Epstein, right? That is, that is true. That was one of the first cases where Roy Black uh, began his infamy was defending William Kennedy Smith here in Palm Beach. And I remember the prosecutor, because I was not impressed, her name was Maura Lash. Am I too hard on her? No, I think you're right. It was a very difficult prosecution to begin with because, you know, during the era that it was prosecuted, sadly, I don't think that women got a fair shake in the court systems. With the Me Too movement over the last couple of years, I think the 
hopefully the scales are starting to tip at least toward the even. And back then, you know, unfortunately, victims were persecuted almost as much as the accused. Spencer Coven, I enjoyed talking to you. You give great answers. You know so much about these celebrity cases. I hope we can stay in touch. And uh, thanks again for talking to me. My pleasure. Reach out anytime. You got a great show and, and you're doing a great, great work out there. Wow, what a challenging time to make sales. But it can be done, especially if you take advantage of Sandler training. This world-renowned organization can teach you and your sales crew how to make more sales. Listen closely, because my buddy Dan Levin, he's giving away Sandler tips for free. Take it away, Dan. Hey, Craig, rule number three, no mutual mystification. For every meeting, we start with an upfront contract. It's our agreement with our prospect on what's gonna happen. We confirm the time set aside. We get our prospect's agenda what they would like to cover to make it a great use of their time. The number to call, 303-829-2107. Call my friend Dan Levitt, 303-829-2107. Tell him Craig sent you. Now, back to The Craig Silverman Show. Hello, Troubadour. How are you today, Craig? I'm wonderful because I just listened to your song and I think it's my new favorite. Nothing the Wind Can't Blow. Tell everybody about it. Nothing the Wind Can't Blow is a song about resiliency and hope as passed on from a mother to her daughter in song. More specifically, it's, a, it's about a woman in the middle. Generationally speaking, she's taking care of her mother in an old folks home and a young child, and she's kind of caught in the middle. She remembers her mother's song reminding her that any any problem was something that could be overcome and eventually would pass so have faith that's what the song's about when we are hurting when our lives are at risk right now with this pandemic i wish my mother was alive because we all go to our mothers for comfort you can't help but think about poor george floyd calling out for his mother as his life got extinguished. What is it about mothers? We don't cry out for dad. We want our mothers, don't we? (laughs) Well, I was lucky to have a good nurturing mother like you were, Craig. So I have wonderful memories of her. In in, in my family's case, she was, she was very strong and also one who, 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 who taught me about resiliency and accepting life on its own terms, not complaining. That's why I like walking with you and talking with you and being your good buddy and you being my troubadour. You are a human pick-me-up. Where did you get that attitude? And tell everybody how to survive this pandemic. Oh, well, that's a tall order. Uh, Where I got it from, my wife, Lisa, says I'm just oblivious to the the difficulties of the world. which I don't know. I don't know if it's any particular philosophy. I think I inherited a, a disposition like, you know, from my mother and my father too. Is He's always been, my father has always been someone who will find his way through a problem. And so he, you know, he taught me that there's, there's ways through, through things, even, even in times of, of difficulty, come up with a plan, a strategy for whatever problem the problem is and, and work your way through it. 
I think that's very helpful. Your song has such beautiful lyrics. And again, when you talk about it's all coming down to this and nothing that the wind can't blow, I've noticed a recurrence of the word down in your songs, but your songs aren't downers at all. And who is that angel singing with you on this song in particular? My angel is, is my older daughter, Sarah Rose Gunders. She sings a beautiful harmony. I call her the mountain girl on this song because she reminds me of a, a, you know, a rural, a young singer in rural who knows where. We'll say Kentucky. Out on the let's say, let's say West Virginia. Okay, we'll say West Virginia, even better. Okay. Sitting out with her family and, and you know, it's a very, she, she has a very sim- simple but beautiful voice. It's so beautiful, this song. I, I want everybody to hear it. It's an uplifting song. In this pandemic era, I give you my troubadour and his beautiful song, Nothing the Wind Can't Blow. All her life making it better Sitting up with her baby child Little girl, tell me what's the matter And I will stay a while Sit right there, I'll tell you the story Where we're from, who you are I'll come from the land of milk and honey Black sky with a million stars. Now she's running late, last one in again. Putting on her face, bring her boss will understand. Later now, visits her mama. on her own And she sees her slowly fading away now In this so-called home She used to have a smile for everyone around Sing to your children Always keep your head up now Trouble coming down to this, down to this, down to this. All our trouble coming down to this. Nothing that the wind can blow. All our trouble coming down to this, down to this, down to this. All our trouble coming down to this. Nothing that the wind can't blow. Lights turn green, she don't go Got her face in her hands crying for her mama And she prays for others she don't know She is young and her faith is strong That 
that's how she was raised With a smile and with a song All our trouble coming down to this Down to this, down to this All our trouble coming down to this Nothing that the wind can't Folks, I urge you to go to MichaelBaileyLawLLC.com. You will see what a handsome dude Michael Bailey is. Michael Bailey helps people proactively plan for their legal needs, including current needs and future legal and financial protection. He understands that physical limitations can also prevent good people from equipping themselves with the legal protection they need because leaving the house may not be as easy as it used to be. That's why he calls himself the mobile estate planner, because he will come to you. Give him a call. He's easy to talk to. 720-730-7274, 720-730-7274 for your end of life legal planning. Hire the lawyer that Trish and I hired Michael Bailey, find him online at michaelbaileylawllc.com. Now, back to The Craig Silverman Show. Welcome to Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. Hans Meyer is the founder of the Meyer Law Office, PC in Denver, Colorado. They specialize in immigration law. Everybody around town knows that Hans is the go-to guy. I got to know him when he was a Colorado State Public Defender. He's now an expert on immigration law. He has all the big cases in the news. He just won a huge victory in the 10th Circuit. 
Hans Meyer, welcome to Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. Thanks, Craig. Glad to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Well, I've been trying for ages to get you on, but you are so darn busy. First, let's find out about Hans Meyer. Where did you grow up and how did you decide to become a lawyer? Uh, Well, I'm a Denver kid. I grew up in Aurora. Wait, right there. That's kind of funny. I heard that on the witness stand once where my colleague Dave Dansky asked a witness, where do you live? And the witness said Denver. And then Dave Dansky asked what part of Denver? And the witness said Aurora. You just did that. Did that's you know right, Aurora right. in Denver? Aurora. Are you a Denverite or a, an Aurora kid? I'm an Aurora kid. Well, there's no shame in that. I'm a Denver kid. I went to GW. What high school did you go to? I was at Overland. Okay, wonderful. Cherry Creek School System. So is it at Overland when you decided, hey, I'm going to be a lawyer? No, I never wanted to be a lawyer. Are you kidding me? That, that's not my stock. I didn't grow up knowing lawyers. The only lawyers we had interactions with are ones who had to represent me and my friends when we got in trouble. Are you the first lawyer in your family? Yeah, yeah. So Are they proud of you? I grew up or in, a mili- they... in a, mili- oh, a military family. That makes sense, Aurora. Yeah. Tell us about it. Right. Yeah, well, I mean, I grew up in Aurora just because of the military. My dad was in the Air Force. And so that's what put me in Aurora growing up. But I'm the first lawyer in the family. The rest of my family school, te- you know, teachers and educators, which is an, a fantastic family to be from because, you know, people just value education and learning. So so when was it that you decided, I'm going to be a lawyer? I think I decided to be a lawyer when I was 27. And, and at really no time before that. It just really wasn't on my radar, things I wanted to do, Craig. Went to school. I wanted to study literature. You know, I wanted to to, to be a, a rock and roll star or a writer or, you know, a college professor. And none of those things worked out. I did a, a, some traveling abroad for several years and ended up living in Latin America for, for quite some time, probably about three years between Mexico and Central America. And then coming back when I was 27. Right. Everybody knows you are fluent in Spanish now. Am I right? Yeah. Yeah. And I learned it when I went down there. I didn't speak any before I went. That's a great job asset. And do people, when they speak to you in Spanish, do they know you're an American? Can they tell? Yeah. You know, I've, I've got a gringo accent, but, you know, I, I think I do all right, you know, for communicating with folks. I bet you do. You also were an Outward Bound instructor. Is that right? Yeah, I taught Outward Bound actually in Costa Rica when I lived there. And then I did a lot of construction work to make money and then also worked as a a wildland firefighter up in Idaho, out in the sticks in Idaho, eastern Oregon, Utah, eastern Washington for, for two seasons as well. This is all before law school. So what happened at 27? Isn't that when John Denver got his Rocky Mountain High? He was born in the summer of his 27th year? Pretty much, yeah. Well, you know, I I bopped around enough. You know, I just, I came back from Latin America. I'd been down there. I'd done a lot of work volunteering in Latin America, just trying to learn about what was going on and dynamics of the places I was living, which was Southern Mexico, Guatemala, Costa Rica, but mostly Guatemala, Mexico. Came back and was doing some interpretation and paralegal work and just kind of kind of fell into the idea of, you know, the paralegal piece moving into being interested in law. And I just decided, you know what, I know what I want to do. I want to work 
in immigration law. I want to work in criminal defense. And then that ended up just kind of backdooring me into going to the DU law school at night and then working during the day. That's fantastic. Then you became a Colorado State public defender. Was that straight out of law school? Yep. Went straight from law school into the PD's office, worked in Denver, the trial office for about four years or so. And then after that, I left the PD's office and started doing, took a right turn and started doing policy and organizing work for the statewide immigrant rights coalition. So I went from trial lawyer work to sort of policy and community work for a couple of years. Why were you so committed to that cause? What was it about your background that made you think that was the right thing to do? You know, I, I just met a bunch of people living abroad who had stories related to migrating either to the U.S. or back from the U.S. And also a very good friend of mine who had come to the United States and applied for asylum. And I worked on his case and he was he was probably my best friend. And so I kind of went through that whole process with him for three or four years and and we lost, you know, and he ultimately had to leave. But that was a pretty galvanizing moment for me to sort of see how the legal system treated him in that process. That's probably the thing that really kind of sparked my desire, my decision to go to law school. Wow. I hope you've rewarded that guy because your law practice is booming. Tell everybody about the Hans Meyer Law Firm. Yeah, I started up, you know, in 2010 after I did some policy work. And we just celebrated our 10th anniversary uh, a couple of months ago. We're hoping to have a big party, but COVID had uh, other other ideas in mind. So we're going to wait on that. But we do immigration law, all aspects of it, both family as well as deportation defense. And then we do criminal defense and post-conviction in, in the criminal space, mostly for immigrants, people who aren't citizens. And then we also do a lot of public policy work. And then we're also doing some civil rights-related work as well. So we'll do state and local legislation. We'll do internal policies, coordination with different people in either the, the court system or the criminal justice system on policy reform stuff or legislative work. When you say we, how many people are working with you now? Right at this point, we're up to eight attorneys. Way to go, man. You are a conglomerate. How has COVID affected the practice of law? I mean, it's dramatic. What about at your law firm? Are you guys still working at your office? Tell us about the courts. What's going on? COVID has been a huge impact for us. I don't know how it is for other people, but most of our clients are working class folks and a bunch of them lost their jobs. And so, you know, it's been a huge impact for us. We did have to lay off some folks in the office. We've had to kind of draw down a little bit for March and April and May. We basically closed the office and worked remotely. We've come back sort of two-thirds time, three-quarters time, swapping off schedules so that we have certain amounts of people in the office. And we're, I think we found a way to try to make it work. You know, we haven't had a big uptick in business, but we've had an uptick in I think we're stable, you know, in our niche, we're able to do some stuff, but the, the COVID's painful for our clients. You know, it's been, I mean, you know, those guys are two, three, four bucks above, you know, poverty wages. And a lot of them work paycheck to paycheck and a lot of them lost their paychecks. So it's been, it's been a struggle. I mean, it's been a struggle also to try to give people the opportunity to, they need time to be able to get a new job or to get stable or to pay rent. And so we're trying to make sure that we can give them that space and that time to do that. So 
So it's been, it, it hasn't been easy. Right. What about the courts, the immigration courts? Is there a log jam? Are you able to do hearings online or do you show up? Yeah, you know, it, it's funny because the immigration courts, at least out of custody immigration courts, have just basically completely shut down. You know, obviously in the state, we've got a lot of virtual courts working. People are able to appear, work through dispositions, processes in their case on the criminal side. But for folks out of custody and immigration, the court's just closed. We're not getting any notices. We haven't been able to do any court dates. So that's basically just a complete logjam. The detention center cases are still going, but those are going virtually and they're, they're telephonic. They don't, for whatever reason, they either don't have or haven't put together like video conferencing capability. So we're, we're on the phone for those hearings. But those are still moving forward since people are detained. What about deportations? Are they happening during this pandemic? Yeah, they're still happening. But I think more recently in the last eight to 10 weeks, we've seen a downtick in those deportations, both because some of the borders are closed, right, between the U.S. and certain other countries. And also because I think for at least a short term, the amount of people in certain detention centers, including Aurora, has gone down. Partly Aurora has gone down because Aurora had a bunch of positive COVID tests as well. So we're seeing a downtick for now, but it's still happening. So we're still seeing deportations go on. A lot of controversy around that Aurora ICE facility. What's your take on that facility and the various protests? Some people hate it from the left. Other people on the right say ICE needs to be supported. Have you gotten involved in those struggles? And which side is the right side? Yeah, you know, we've done a, I've done a lot of work with GEO. We have a, a 60,000 person class action lawsuit against the Aurora Geo Detention Center. I won't say that we're not lead counsel on it, but we're co-counsel. And it has to do with forced labor and violations of something called the Trafficking Victims Protection Act. That case has been going on for four years. There's other litigation against Aurora Geo that's going on related to multiple other issues, conditions of confinement, deplorable medical care. At the end of the day, it's a for-profit prison. It does what for-profit prisons do, which is make profit. They don't give a damn about conditions of confinement, basic respect for human decency, or basic detention standards. They just don't give a damn because they're not supposed to. They're trying to maximize profits. That's why we have these lawsuits, these 60,000-person class action, all these other class action lawsuits and individual lawsuits against conditions of confinement, things related to COVID and treatment, the actual sort of access to programming in geo. I mean, it's a, it's an abject failure in the sense of it's just a, it's just a wholesale run on taxpayers to maximize profits for for profit places like geo. It just, you know, we shouldn't have any business in having for profit detention. The question of detention is a different question, but for these for profit corporations, even for fiscal conservatives, this is just a terrible, I mean, it's a terrible model, except for people who have stock in geo or people who are on geo's board. We did learn about that in law school. Myself at CU, you at DU. I had to take a corporations class. They don't have a heart or a soul. It's all about a fiduciary obligation to make money for their shareholders, which doesn't necessarily work in the people serving business, which is part of incarcerating people. Tell me who is at the Aurora facility? Are they accused? Are they already convicted? What is the population there? That's an interesting question. A, a lot of these, a lot of folks in detention at that facility 
are just in the country without status. You know, they maybe got picked up in a traffic case, and they may or may not have an opportunity to ask a judge to stay. But a lot of them get held in something called mandatory detention, which means they don't qualify for a bond. Bad for them, good for GEO, because GEO is able to extract 150 bucks a day for each body they keep in a cell every single day. So there's a, there's a law federally that allows or requires people to be held in mandatory detention, even when they're not a risk, you know. Just kind of like in a criminal system, if someone's accused, most of the time, almost all the time, they get a bond, they post it, and then they comply with proceedings. Maybe they get sentenced afterwards if they're found guilty or they plead guilty. But in immigration, over overwhelmingly, a majority of people are held in mandatory detention, which is good really for only a couple of people and, and the people it's really good for are geo and, and geo shareholders. So, you know, we're, we're basically attacking that model. And I mean, our, our, our we're going to obliterate uh, eventually for-profit prisons. I mean, geo's on the chopping block. They know it. We know it. It's really a matter of time until we get to the sort of critical mass and the tipping point, whether that's litigation, profit model, or national policy to just get rid of for-profit prisons. It just doesn't make any sense. Wow, what a bold prediction. You sound like Muhammad Ali or Joe Namath guaranteeing victory. I like that kind of confidence. <laughs> well, hey, we're, we're coming at David versus Goliath, and at this point, you know, we're, we're, we're out of, we're out of, we're out of uh, patience. You know, we're just going to throw everything we have at that model. Are you David or Goliath? How many people are in your class? Yeah, we're, well, at least in that lawsuit, there's 60,000 people in the plaintiff class. I mean, GEO's got a lot of money, you know. They've got oh, okay, right. Dollars. So it's a private corporation, <laughs> right. but is, yeah, is yeah. the government weighing in on it at all? Yeah, the government's been involved in some of it, but the actual litigation is against GEO as the facility. So, you know, this will be an interesting how this plays out because this has been coming at GEO from multiple directions, Right not just legally in terms of class action litigation or litigation in general, but also in the public sphere, the public conversation around, you know, does for-profit prison make sense? Does it make sense from a fiscal perspective? Does it make sense from a, like a, like a criminal justice and policy perspective or even from a human perspective? And I think those, I think those scales are starting to turn, you know, we've been on the defensive for a long time, but, but I think things are going to, I think things are changing. And they may change on November 3. I would imagine the Trump administration likes these private for-profit corporations running prisons. Am I right? Are, are they getting involved in, the, in any way? Yeah, I mean, they've, they have, once, when the Trump administration came in, if I remember correctly, GEO stock almost doubled within a very short period of time. Because the Trump administration has announced its support for for-profit prisons. It needs and wants for-profit prisons to be able to sort of operationalize the sort of deportation agenda that the Trump administration has. So they're they're in lockstep, right? So if we have a change in administration, then I think we have a revisiting of those issues. Kind of like Obama, during his administration, announced the intention, to, I believe, to end for-profit prisons in the BOP, the Bureau of Prisons. And then, of course, the election happened, and that didn't wasn't ever actually implemented by the by the Bureau of Prisons. So, this is kind of flip flopped back and forth. But I think you know, Geo's running out of gas. I mean, they're making plenty of money, but taxpayers are sick of it. And I think as a public policy question, and as a question within communities about what the right thing to do is, 
not just emotionally or philosophically, but like constitutionally and fiscally. They're on borrowed time. I think I really do. Right. I just texted my broker to sell my stock in Geo now. No, I'm just kidding. I <laughs> shorted it. Get it, get it. No. it done. <laughs> yeah, I didn't know I was going to get stock tips from you, but you've always given me tips on criminal cases because anybody smart double checks with Hans Meyer. Hey, if my client takes a deal to this, well, they have to be deported. It comes down to crimes of moral turpitude, and you just changed the law a little bit. Tell everybody what kind of conviction will get somebody who's not a citizen deported out of the country. Well, usually it's things called crimes of moral turpitude or aggravated felonies or controlled substance offenses. And thankfully, we just had a powerful win at the Tenth Circuit last Friday in a case called Johnson v. Barr, which basically said that controlled substance possession offenses, simple possession, whether that's you know simple felony possession or simple misdemeanor possession, can no longer serve as a basis for deportation if it's a Colorado possession offense. And it can functionally no longer serve as a ground to automatically deny a person who's applying for a green card. It doesn't mean they get one. It doesn't mean it. It means it doesn't serve as an automatic bar. So this basically has a lot of impact for people who have green cards or who had them where the immigration courts were, were getting the legal analysis wrong. They were finding that these triggered deportability or deportation. And the 10th Circuit said, no, that's not the actual legal analysis. That's not correct. So it's a, been a pretty big case that we think will have a, a favorable impact for a lot of folks. Also, I mean, we're talking about drug possession cases, right? These are relatively minor offenses that most people are getting probationary sentences for, and most people are able to successfully resolve and put behind them. Wow, we know who Barr is. I presume that's Bill Barr, Attorney General, Chief Law Enforcement Officer in America, right? Your client named yep. Johnson. Tell us about the story yep. of Mr. Johnson. Yeah, Everett Johnson is originally from the Bahamas, came to the U.S. as a resident when he, I believe, was seven or eight years old. And he's been a resident since since Jimmy Carter was president. So I think it was 43 years he'd had his green card. He pleaded in Jefferson County to simple possession, DF4, drug felony 4. He did not get adequate advice from his defense lawyer about the impacts of that plea, and he was ordered deported. We picked up his case when he was in detention, and we're making the argument to the court that the legal analysis has been incorrect for the last couple of decades about whether that can trigger deportability. And it has to do with something called the categorical approach, right? The, the legal analysis for elementally what's necessary to sustain a conviction and whether that triggers a federal ground of deportation. And we lost at the immigration court level. We lost at the Board of Immigration Appeals level, which was not surprising. We knew this case had to go to the circuit. It did. It went to the circuit. And interestingly, the decision was written by Judge Carson, who's a Trump appointee. And, you know, he agreed with a very clear categorical approach. You look at the statute, you look at the penalties, you look at the state case law. If it's not a categorical match, it can't fit as a ground of deportation. And so, thankfully, the Johnson case came out with a very clear, very well-written decision that sort of unequivocally states that those simple possession offenses, they're not predicates that can't be a basis for deportation. Part of that was triggered by Colorado reducing the penalties for certain drug offenses as well, correct? 
Well, it didn't necessarily have to do with reducing the penalties. It just had to do more with the fact that the actual sort of statutory structure of the drug statute didn't fit the statutory grounds federally. I see. You know, to have uniform applicability, they want to make sure this categorical approach is applied evenly between states. And Colorado's offense just didn't, it just didn't fit. And the immigration courts were, they were just getting it wrong. They just had the wrong legal analysis. And the Supreme Court in a case called Mathis in 2016 really clarified the analysis. But even then, the immigration courts were, this is an important case to take to the 10th, you know, and it was an important case to get clarity on. Way to go. You are, you are a trailblazer. Yeah. I hope this. I hope. I hope this does something to help keep some people together. I mean, as a policy matter, does it make any sense to rip a green card holder of forty-three years away from his family for one possession offense? Just doesn't make any feel like policy sense. But legally, it was a very technical decision, and it was just that it 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 just can't trigger deportability. So that was good. It was a nice Hans Meyer. You see so many heartbreaking situations. Do any stand out? Do you think we should have open borders or what's your philosophy on all of that? No, I don't think we should have open borders. You know, one thing I did, that one thing that I thought, one thing I wanted to mention here on the state level is a broad push that happened between liberals and conservatives and lawyers and bar associations and nonprofits and even the court system itself to get ICE out of making arrests at our courthouses. And that's a piece of legislation we won and passed this spring before COVID hit. And I think that's a big victory that we have to claim. It doesn't mean that ICE can't do their job. They, they can certainly do their job. They just can't manipulate our local justice systems when they're doing so. And by infiltrating courthouses, they were violating what's called the common law writ of protection and principles of the Tenth Amendment, and we passed a statute to prohibit those ICE courthouse arrests with a broad base of support. You know, this is not just coming from sort of immigrant rights activists. It's coming from judges, coming from probation officers, it's coming from prosecutors, it's coming from defense attorneys, it's coming from civil libertarians and people who believe in states' rights and the separation of powers. So that part was really cool to see because I do think that that law is really important to reinstill trust in our local legal systems and our you know, our state court systems, whether it's a criminal justice system or whether it's a restraining order or divorce proceeding. That feels like a really important win for us to reestablish a balance between state and federal authority. Hans Meyer, I was there when you won a big award from the Anti-Defamation League. That had to feel good. Man, it felt fantastic. And it was really humbling, too, because, you know, the Anti-Defamation League, ADL has, I mean, they've, 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 fought for civil rights, and they've been on the right side of every major battle for like 100 years. And our local chapter has done just amazing work. And so it was really humbling to even be able to share the stage with other people who received awards and, and also people who had received awards previously. Honestly, it was really sort of a humbling moment for me. And that, that, that was a really special moment for me. We both read where the Anti-Defamation League this week put together an amazing expose on Michelle Malkin, an anti-immigrant hawk, who say the ADL has found she's gone way too far, hooked up with the radical right. Hans Meyer, 
What do you make of people who are on the far right? And at what point is it a matter of bigotry? Yeah, you know, that's an interesting question. I, I know you've had interactions with her, and I know the ADL, thankfully, did that investigation and expose regarding her ties. I mean, there's a difference, right, between being politically right and conservative and being a bigot. Those are just completely different things, right, or being a racist. And, you know, people sometimes throw around those critiques of people on the right, and maybe they're not necessarily fairly lodged. But in her case, it seems like there's a pretty consistent history and direct evidence that she associates, right, with far right-wing elements that are, are sort of clearly openly white supremacist. So, you know, at that point, if it quacks like a duck and walks like a duck, you got to call it a duck. Um, so, you know, I, I don't, I'm not incredibly familiar with her because I just focus on what we're working on and the victories that we're having. But I think that's where I thank you and the ADL for, for calling that out when it happens, because that is really important to separate out political conservatism, which has an absolute place in our democracy, from racism and white supremacy, which does not. Right. And I think the, the difference between those two is very important. I'll tell you what's important. Who's in charge at a chief executive level? Before we talk about Jared Polis, let's talk about Donald Trump. It occurs to me that you probably liked some of his prison reform moves done with the aid of a lot of liberals. That was interesting. But at the same time, what he's done with family separation and whatnot. Give us your assessment of our current chief executive, Donald Trump. You know, I mean, there's so much to talk about, but my, let me just limit my lens to immigration, since that's more where I where I focus on, because the other critiques are just sort of my opinion. But I think the the dismantling of any sort of even rudimentary overtures towards due process or fundamental fairness, family separation, separation of parents from children, elimination of even basic asylum processes, defunding of USCIS the constant executive orders that come out that usurp executive authority that almost always, at least at some level, get struck down in the courts. It's just a train wreck, right? And that's, of course, by design by the Trump administration. And, and I will sort of them with sort of a certain level of depraved brilliance and their ability to work towards dismantling any due process work, creating and sowing chaos and trying to completely change the map of immigration law, if they can't get there statutorily, they'll try to get there with executive authority, funding, and policy. But it's a, it's a complete train wreck. And on so many fronts, it's just a, a complete insult and affront to basic concepts of what we believe in an informed democracy and the ability for people to access even just basic rights under immigration law or even court process. So it's a complete abomination. At the very least, it doesn't take that much to say, you know, if the policy is that we're going to sort of devastate families and children at the border, and that's the best our policy is, that policy just needs to change, right? And that, that sort of administration needs to change. There's, there's better ways to achieve a balance between national security, macro priorities and actually giving people a basic right to due process of law under recognized and established federal statute and what the Trump administration is doing. So that's our lens of things. And, you know, the great part is that he's called upon us to rise to the occasion, us being people inside the country who work in these areas. And I really feel like 
all over the country, people are. I mean, it's a battle. It's hard. It's heartbreaking. It's devastating sometimes. But we don't give up. You know, this is a war against oblivion for people in the immigrant communities. And the good thing about that is there's only one pathway, and that pathway is forward. I'm going to mark you down as a no vote on Donald Trump come November 3. <laughs> are, are, are you enthusiastic? Put me down as a soft no. <laughs> uh, uh, what about Joe Biden? Will you vote for him? I will probably vote for Joe, Joe Biden. Probably not my preferred candidate, but uh, particularly as it relates to immigration policy, as well as some other policies. It's the, it's the choice that, that I will be making and the person I'll probably be casting my vote for. Don't tell me you're a Kanye supporter. Kanye West <laughs> will be on the ballot in Colorado. He, he will be on the ballot in Colorado. I, I probably will pass on that one. <laughs> what about Jared Polis? Do you think, do you give him a thumbs up or thumbs down the way he's been governor of Colorado? Um, you know, I give him a thumbs up. I think that the transition between Congress and being the governor is, is a, you know, is a pretty big gear shift. And as it relates to sort of immigration policy and, and, and state criminal justice policy, you know, I, I think there's a learning curve. I think there's some things in the administration that I'd like to see them inhabit a little more boldly. But I think we're moving steps in the right direction. And I think he has done a fair amount of work to support both the immigrant community as well as look at other reform in other areas, including the criminal justice system. So, you know, I'm, I, I think he's, he's, he's done a good job. I think there's always room maybe to do a little bit better and to be a little bit bolder. You have such great attitude on life. Where do you get that philosophy? You seem like an upbeat person, busy as hell, but you love what you do. Are you doing okay during COVID? And what advice do you have for the people? I'm I'm doing all right, you know. It's complicated times. I think the the way that I try to stay positive is I'm lucky enough to work in, in an area of law and an area of advocacy that I love. It feels right, you know. When I wake up or I go to sleep, it feels like I'm doing the right thing. I'm surrounded by people in my law firm and my community and my family. I think who 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 also sort of reflect and share those ideas. And even though it's a hard time, both in terms of COVID and economically as well, particularly in immigration law and policy and impacts on, on communities. It's hard, but, you know, the ability to work towards change is the motivator, right? And I think that that keeps us focused on the positive and focused on the future, focused on what we can accomplish now. And, you know, just like everybody else, we also have to take a deep breath, take a pause, and I have to be appreciative and thankful for the things I have. You know, we're not guaranteed one moment more. So true, Hans Meyer. I had a great time talking to you in Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. I hope you enjoyed it, and you are in the forefront on all these issues. I hope someday we can visit again. I'd love to, Craig. Thank you for inviting me on, and have a good day. Hope you stay safe, and, and all the listeners stay safe out there and healthy. Thanks, Hans Meyer. Gosh, it's hot in here. Did that toaster catch on fire? It wasn't that. You choked on that bite of burnt bagel. Why is everything all red? The heat is unbearable. Where am I? Excuse me, your dishonor. May I step in on behalf of my client? Mr. Silverman, proceed. Tell me one redeeming good thing your client did. He was a faithful listener to my radio show. Not good enough. He had decency and compassion for his family. He did end-of-life planning with Michael Bailey. The Michael Bailey? That is kind to your loved ones. That is smart 
smart and way too decent for this place. Your client can go. And what about me, your despicableness? Why should I? Michael Bailey is my lawyer, too. Go on, then. Get out of here. <laughs> now, part of that was serious, and part of that was fictional. But you will die someday, and if you don't make a legal plan, the government will make one for you. Wow, what a challenging time to make sales. But it can be done, especially if you take advantage of Sandler training. This world-renowned organization can teach you and your sales crew how to make more sales. Listen closely, because my buddy Dan Levin, he's giving away Sandler tips for free. Take it away, Dan. Thanks, Craig. Rule number four, a decision not to make a decision is a decision. Have you ever had a prospect tell you, I need to think it over? It's the worst phrase to hear in sales. We all want yeses. Or the second test, no. Most of the time when we hear, I want to think it over, it means they're really afraid to tell us no, which means we're going to end up wasting lots of time chasing them. So when you hear, I just have to think it over, we'll test them. Hey, no's okay. I get the feeling it's not a fit, but you're not really sure how to tell me that. If that's the case, it's okay to tell me no. Wonderful advice, my friend Danny Levitt. Give him a call. Tell him Craig sent you. 303-829-2107. 303-829-2107. Sandler Training. You will make better sales. Now back to the Craig Silverman Show. Patrick, Hello. it's Craig. Yes, Craig. Hey. Hi, Craig. I'm- <laughs> How are you, man? I'm okay. I'm okay. Just, uh, you know, trying to, to work the best I can, you know, in this crazy world we're in right now. You are doing a heck of a job. You got me all excited this morning because I read your byline about a game that I couldn't watch because I was working yesterday. What a game, but yeah, you yeah, put in that yeah. word that gets everybody excited. You know what it is. No, what? Rocktober. Oh, right. <laughs> yeah, I like to throw that around once in a while, right? Because it gets everybody jazzed. So <laughs> that's funny. Patrick Saunders is uh, just a great sports reporter, great journalist. You've covered the Rockies off and on for quite a while, but you were there during Rocktober. And what great memories just flow to mind when we think about that magical autumn? Oh, my. Well, we're October. I'm in my home office now, and my wife is kind enough to put together this very nice framed piece with a story that I did, which captured the Rockies winning 21 of 22 games to get to the World Series. And I think about that time, and I think the main thing that comes to my mind was just how captivated the city and the of Denver and the state of Colorado became. It was just night after night after night, just this magic carpet ride, if you will. Specifics, I remember Todd Helton hit a, hit a walk-off home run against uh, Saito, the closer of the Dodgers, which kind of sparked the whole thing. I mean, and there were so many heroes during that run. It seemed like pick a different guy every night would come through for him. And Josh Fogg, you know, the Dragon Slayer, or Gosh, Jamie Carroll or Matt Holiday or Kaz Matsui had a grand slam in Philadelphia in the playoffs. Just it was just such a remarkable run. And it became a blur because it all happened so fast. But I've covered sports for a long time. It's a cherished memory for sure. You are giving me 
chills. And I know what a close relationship you have with your family, your siblings, and your father, who everybody knows, Dusty Saunders. I think back to October, and my father was alive then, and he was sort of on his last legs. But darned if after we won one of those uh, playoff series, he walked about seven blocks with me back to my law firm, and he was just floating on air. And what a great experience. My brother was with me. And then my son, Ben, and I went to the play-in game. Mad Holiday, maybe touched the plate, maybe he didn't. It brings me chills. I associate it with my family. How about you? Oh, I do too. No question about it. It's kind of fun. My mom, who's always been something of a sports fan, but she's always the biggest sports fan, depending on what I cover. So back in the day, when I covered the Broncos, during Elway's heyday, that's the that's the team she followed. When I started covering the Rockies, uh, the Rockies became her team, and they still are. But yeah, I remember that night was was crazy. My wife was there, some other friends were there, and one of the things I remember was everybody getting home very late because the Rockies put playoff tickets on sale at Coors Field late that night after the game, and people were standing in line for hours to get playoff tickets, my wife among them. Pretty amazing memories. And my daddy, you mentioned Dusty Saunders, doesn't necessarily have to jive with October, but my dad grew up, he's a Denver native. He grew up when there were no teams west of the Mississippi River. So his team was the St. Louis Cardinals because he could listen to on KMOX radio out of St. Louis. So he was a huge, huge Cardinals fan. And I think it was my first or second year on the Rockies beat. I took my dad back to St. Louis with me for Father's Day weekend. And he got to go to a couple of Cardinals games and we went out to dinner. And that was, that was an amazing father-son type of weekend that, that I'll always cherish. My old man grew up here and his favorite player was Stan Musial. I bet your dad loved Stan the man, right? Exactly. That was my dad's favorite player of all time as well. No, it's just remarkable to talk about these things. And you bring up Father's Day when I was doing an afternoon show on KHOW. I had a press pass and I got on the field and I was interviewing players about their fathers. And one of the nicest guys to talk to me, he had a baby face and he had just been called up, Charlie Blackman. Oh my. And I'll never forget that. Tell us about Chuck Nasty. I loved your article this week about him because that guy is just a professional player. But for people who don't even follow baseball, he had the COVID-19 and he talked to you about it. Tell everybody about Chuck Nasty. Well, you know, Chuck Nasty, it's funny. He's almost got a persona with his Chuck Nasty Twitter tag with that crazy mullet and that crazy beard. I tell him it looks a lot like some old Civil War general or something. But Charlie, for those who don't know, is incredibly bright, incredibly articulate with the Georgia Tech. I don't know if I've ever known anybody, at least not in baseball, who is such a hard worker and such a slave to detail. And for me as a reporter through the years, as much as I like Charlie, it can be very frustrating because he's very difficult to get a hold of to talk to, not because he's you know, got something against the media or me in particular, it's because he's always working on his craft, the craft of baseball. So that means video, pregame in the clubhouse. It means his batting cage routine pregame. It means his lifting routine postgame. And so Charlie is, he's all in 
all the time. You know, and it's funny. If you take away the, the beard and the, the long mullet hairdo and everything, a lot of women have told me that uh, Charlie Black was a really good-looking dude. And he was back in the day when you saw him as this clean-shaven guy, but Charlie's his own man. He's going to do what he wants to do. But uh, he is such a terrific hitter and such a terrific player. And I know it's a short season. We're barely into it. But he's scored with a 400 batting average right now. And he had the COVID. Yeah, he did. How did he overcome it? It gives us all hope that we can come back if, God forbid, we Well, you know, as we all know, symptoms vary from person to person, right? Some people test positive and they're asymptomatic and they never even know they have it, even though they can pass it along to someone else. Charlie knew he had something. He described it as uh, a mild flu for him. He did have fever, chills, cough, body aches. He said his went away, oh, I think he said three or four days. And he felt a little bit weak and sluggish for a, a short amount of time. But he said he came back a little quicker than he thought he would. And he didn't look particularly good the first couple of games for the Rockies when the season started on the 24th down in Texas. But since then, he's come on really strong. He's in the middle as we talked to him today and heading into tonight's game. Rockies are in Seattle. He's in the midst of a 10-game hitting streak. Uh, and the only person in the Rockies history who's ever had more hitting streaks of 10 games or better is Todd Helton. Charlie Blackman just surpassed Larry Walker in that category yesterday. So he is, as Clint Hurdle used to say, he is a professional hitter. No question. And he's not the only one. Trevor's story has gone up. And the most encouraging thing I read besides Rocktober in your story, is that Trevor's story thinks it's a special bunch, not just talent-wise, but they all get along. And we're going through this crisis. All of us are in this together, but those guys really are. Is that part of it, the great start? Are these guys friends? They are. And, you know, it's interesting. I think a lot of fans have a misconception about what clubhouses or locker rooms are like. They they want to believe, and I understand why, they want to believe that teams in the professional level are like college or high school teams where everybody's buddy-buddy and hanging out all the time. But the truth of the matter is, uh, that's rare to find on a Major League Baseball team or a National League football team because guys are, you know, diverse backgrounds, they have different interests. You know, it's just it's just a reality. It's like any workplace you're at, you're going to be get along with most of your co-workers, you're going to be friendly with a few of them, you're going to be really tight with maybe one or two, but I think this Rocky team is different than most of them I've covered, and I don't think Trevor was just blowing smoke when he said that. This is a very tight unit. They really do pull for each other. I do get the sense it's a very unselfish team, and I think it's one of the reasons why, while other teams, uh, the Cardinals, the Marlins, the Phillies, on and on and on, have tested positive multiple times for COVID. The Rockies, cross your fingers, at least so far, once the season started, have not. And it's because uh, they're adhering to strict protocols. They're policing each other. In the Rockies' point of view, and I believe it was Trevor Story who first said this a few weeks ago, he said, you know what, our, our point of view is, if we take care of this team better, than any other team in regard to staying healthy from the virus, that probably means we're going to win more games than other teams. So we're going to take that on our shoulders uh, and kind of make it our mission. And so far, that's really worked for them. That's beautiful. There are special rules. 
Did they take away sunflower seeds from these guys? Too much hand-to-mouth action? They did. No chewing tobacco, no sunflower seeds. They're not supposed to spit. Although if you watch the games on TV, it's a hard habit to break. And I've seen multiple players on multiple teams spitting, both in the dugout and on the field. It's just a natural reflex. Guys can chew gum, but they can't chew sunflower seeds. And obviously, they can't do chewing tobacco either. What are the special rules for the media? Can you talk to these guys in person or what are the rules? Well, it's, it's a whole new ballgame for us too, Craig. It's, uh, I'm not traveling this year. First year covering the Rockies, I have not been on the road. I do home games. I mean, I'm sorry, road games from my home office. I watch the game on TV, follows on the computer. And then we do Zoom calls in the Rockies PR department, which in my mind is the best sports media relations crew that I've ever worked with. And that encompasses a lot of years. They are amazing how hard they work. They get us multiple players every day. We get Bud Black, the manager, twice a day on a Zoom call. And at Coors Field, the home game, we do go to Coors Field. We sit in the press box. We watch the game as normal without fans in the stands, of course. But we do not have access to the clubhouse as we normally do, which is kind of a bummer for a beat reporter such as myself who covers the team on almost a daily basis. Because you get so used to taking that hour or so in the clubhouse on a daily basis, mingling with the players, interviewing them, getting the inside scoop, forming relationships, etc. Well, that's gone now, and it's all done via Zoom, and you basically have to share the Zoom with all the other media in the Denver area, some of whom are very dedicated to covering the Rockies, and some will only pay attention to them occasionally. And that's a little frustrating because you get some kind of dumb questions sometimes. But that's just the, you know, that's just the reality of what we're living with right now. We are taping this Friday afternoon for our show drops every Saturday morning at 9 a.m. Tonight they play Seattle. Will you get your story in the morning paper I get on my driveway? Well, actually, I have not had a day off for like 17 days in a row. So. I am actually not covering tonight's game remotely. My partner, colleague, uh, Kyle Newman is. It depends on, to answer your question, depends how late the game goes and depends on which edition of the actual physical newspaper you get. Mm -hmm. If you're within the city, you know, Denver proper, if the game doesn't go too late, you might get the print version of our game story in your physical paper. If the game goes too late or if you live in an outlying area, chances are you won't. Unfortunately, that's the reality of the media world we live in. Uh, everything, as you well know, is now all about digital and websites, et cetera. Right. W- what is expected of you, Patrick? Are you supposed to turn in your complete story within 15 minutes or 30 minutes of the end of the game? Oh, much quicker than that. Wow. I'm supposed to have a game story, the first version of it, without quotes. Usually, you know, they want it as soon as the moment the game's over. I mean, you know, within like two minutes or three minutes. So there's a lot of pressure, especially with baseball, especially with the Rockies and Coors Field. I can't tell you how many what I consider really well-written, well-crafted, very thematic game stories through the years I've written that never see the light of day because the Rockies or the opposing team blow it all up in the eighth or ninth inning, and then you're left to scramble, and you got about five minutes left to basically recast your entire at least the top two-thirds of your story, it's uh, it's challenging. It gets the adrenaline pumping for sure. 
Um, but yeah, that happens a lot. Fortunately, this year it hasn't happened all but one time. That's when Wayne Davis uh, blew blew up that first night. Right. <laughs> oh no! Please don't say that's- his name. Don't say his name. I mean, that's my big worry. When is he coming up injured reserve? Because I call it IR for myself because he made me (laughs) ill that game. I had a pretty big bet, not only on the Rockies, but on the under. And by the way, that's been the play all year long. Bet the Rockies, bet the under. And we can talk about it now because we're in Colorado and it's legal. But Wade Davis, talk to me about that guy. Did the Rockies waste all that money? Well, let, let me say this. First, let's talk about, as you say, the, the, the IR, the official designation is injured list. Now, they used to call it the disabled list, but I guess that wasn't politically correct. So they changed it back to injured list. He's on it for minimum 10 days. He could come back soon, but he's not ready to. He has shoulder problems. Good. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, Rocky, yeah. Rocky, <laughs> Rockies are being very coy about how severe it is. Uh, Wade is a, a real... He's, he's, I really like Wade Davis a lot. He's a tough guy, he's a, but he's a stand-up guy. He, when he was with Kansas City Royals, he was one of baseball's best believers, no question about it. You know, in his first year here, he led the National League with 43 saves, set a Rockies team record. So, you know, that was that was 2018, and you know, ZRA and stuff was great, but he got the job done when he needed to. Last year, as we all know, was a complete disaster. Mm-hmm. He had an 11 plus ERA at Coors. Mm-hmm. And I thought the Rockies penciling him in as their closer that way back when, when spring training first started, was a mistake because I just don't think he has it anymore. And I think we've seen that, or we saw that last Friday night when he imploded. I just don't think he can reinvent himself at this stage of his career to his age. I think he's 34, 35. Reinvent himself as a pitcher. I'm not saying he can't be a relief pitcher anymore, but I don't think he's got the firepower to be the ninth inning guy anymore. And the problem with that was they had somebody in line to replace him with now Scott Oberg's season and perhaps careers in jeopardy because now he has blood clots for the third time in four years in his right arm. So sad. And, it, right. and, and Scott, you know, has been the Rockies' best reliever by far for two and a half years, and, and he will not be pitching for him this year. So they're left to scramble a little bit to find out who's going to fill that role. Right now, it's Tyro Diaz. And although he's a little bit inconsistent, he can throw hard. He's an attacking style pitcher, which is what you want in the ninth inning. So we'll see how far he can take him. Well, Wade Davis may not ever come back, but boy, has Kyle Freeland. Now, I went to George Washington, our natural rival, Thomas Jefferson, but I still root for Denver Prep League kids. Kyle Freeland, he looked good again last night. He's undefeated. That's a great story, especially for people like you and me who grew up here. No question. You know, and, and Kyle is, for those who don't know, two years ago, 2018, he finished fourth in the Cy Young Award voting in the National League. He had a 285 ERA, which is the lowest ever for a starting pitcher in Rockies history for a full season. He was amazing. He was so good. Last year, he was not good at all. He knows it. He worked so hard in the offseason to kind of rebuild himself. He changed his delivery. He changed his focus. And now, I think he has a chance to be an even better pitcher going forward, Craig, because he's learning to use a wide, wide assortment of pitches, his change up, his fastball, his slider, a curve on occasion, uh, 
he's been incredibly effective so far. You know, he did give up a mistake home run yesterday, but outside of that, he's been he's been awesome. And one of the things I really like about Kyle Freeland is he's a no nonsense guy, and he's a stand up guy too. And he's one of those athletes who, if he doesn't perform up to his standards, and he knows it, he doesn't mind those of us in the media. And not being belligerent toward him, certainly, but asking him the tough question about, you know, where are you? What's gone wrong? This, this is not up to your standards and expectations. And he's very candid and honest. And I think that's one of the reasons he's bouncing back, because he is candid and honest with himself. And he realizes he wants to fulfill his dream of being a really good, long-time major league pitcher, that he needed to change some things. And he was all in with it. And so far, so good. He's looked tremendous. Is part of his dream to remain in the Mile High City throughout his career, doing Elway? You know what? I don't know. It's a good question. I've never asked him that. I know he loves being a Colorado Rocky. He grew up going to games at Coors Field. He used to pitch at, you know, the, the stadium down down by South High School. So he loves it here, but that's you Tommy, never know. But- Tommy Marcus Field, named after my old uh, coach at GW, one of my coaches. Oh, that's fantastic. Right. I was not aware of that. Yes. That's awesome. But whether Kyle, when he becomes an unrestricted free agent here in a few years, whether he remains a Rocky, there's so many factors. Number one, being the market for pitchers that year. Number two, how good a pitcher will he be when he becomes a free agent? Three, do the Rockies try to sign him before then? They tried, they've done that with a number of players, including Nolan Arenado, Charlie Blackman, Herman Marquez. All those guys signed deals before they became free agents. Will the Rockies do that with Kyle Freeland? I don't know. And, you know, if they don't and he becomes a free agent, I guess he, you know, he owes it to himself to look around to see what his situation would be best for him. But I'm sure if he, if he had a great career and it was all in Colorado, he'd embrace that in a minute, I'm sure. And I'm sure his parents would like it. I, I mean, oh yeah. And let's talk about another hometown hero, Patrick Saunders. You grew up here, and <laughs> I know your family, and I know Steve, your brother. Right now, one on one in basketball, who would win, you or Steve? Oh my! You know what? I'm going to say Steve because he's in better shape than I am right now. I was, I think, I was a better shooter than Steve. Now, neither of us were great. I'd probably say Steve would probably be me one on one. What sport? Baseball. What sport would you be to Matt? Go ahead. <laughs> probably golf. Although neither of us are great shakes in golf either. I mean, we played every sport under the sun when we were kids growing up in Arvada. Uh, neither of us were like good enough to be, you know. Well, I, I mean, I made the varsity the tennis player, but neither of us were were good enough to be like super jocks or anything. But we love sports of all kinds and. Uh, we love to compete, and we got that from our father. But that's a great question. I, I'll have to ask him next time I see him, or maybe he and I will have to go out to a court and play one-on-one. That's what it's to. about. I'm thinking about <laughs> your dad, Dusty Saunders. What kind of a sports dad was he? He was quite a tennis player, as I recall. When he watched you play varsity tennis, what was that like? Well, you know, it's interesting. My dad went to Holy Family High School. He was the center. My dad, when he the end of high school was about 6'3", so he's big for his era. Had a terrific hook shot, a very old-fashioned, old-school hook shot. My dad actually went and played two years of junior college basketball at the old Fort Lewis College in Durango, and it was still a, a, a junior college. And then he went to Mesa when he was a junior college. 
And I believe when he went to CU and transferred up to CU, he made it to the last cut on their varsity team at CU. So my dad was a heck of a basketball player. And he actually coached me in Little League when I was a kid. And then, but my dad's great passion and love is he got, you know, through his adult life. And he had a, a group of friends with, they'd go to the Gates Tennis Center and they would play almost every Saturday when the weather was worth it. But my dad and I played a lot against each other when I was younger. We were very competitive against each other. If I was beating him, he hated it. And if he was beating me, I hated it. I guess it was a father-son thing. But no, no, my dad was thrilled when I I played at Arvada High School. And yeah, I have great, great memories uh, playing tennis with my dad, no question about it. The other thing about your dad is he covered the entertainment industry like few people ever have before or since. Did you get to meet a lot of celebrities? And do you ever get flustered when you meet big-time athletes or celebrities? Or did the Saunders upbringing prepare you for all of that? (laughs) That's a great question. Well, you know, my dad worked at the Rocky Mountain News for 54, was it 54, 55 years? I would venture to guess my dad probably produced more written words, more copy than any journalist in Colorado history. I'm serious when I say that. That's how hard he worked, how many violence he had through the years, covered TV, radio, the Denver entertainment scene. He was a cop reporter at one point, covered City Hall. But yeah, through the years, all the Saunders kids would get their chance to go with my dad to the TV junket in the Hollywood area and get to meet a variety of stars. For some reason, I don't remember ever meeting a lot of great stars. My brothers and sisters did. I always seem to get kind of a uh, the, not the great trips, but to answer your other question, you know what? With athletes now, I don't get flustered at all because I've been doing it for so long. When I first got in the business, I remember the first few times I interviewed like a John Elway or Floyd Little, or uh, I remember I interviewed Michael Jordan one time. And yeah, I was like, oh my God, look at what I'm interviewing. And that doesn't happen to me at all anymore because I think as you, you uh, do this as long as you have and you see these people, these athletes as people and you realize some of them are really salt of the earth, good people. And some of them treat you like crap. You start to just realize, well, you know what? This is my profession. Uh, I'll be friendly. I hope they're friendly back, but I'm not going to be starry eyed about them. But that's not true in the other world. I remember a few years ago when Bruce Springsteen is my hero, came to the tattered cover to find his book. And I was lucky enough to get in line to get an autograph book from, from Bruce Springsteen. And uh, my knees and my legs turned to jello that day because that's how, that's how starry-eyed I was about Bruce Springsteen. So I suppose it, it depends on, you know, who you're talking to and who you've talked to in the past. That's so interesting. Did you use your press pass to get into that book signing with Springsteen? I did not. I did not. We had to go through the, uh, Channels like everybody else and take, take our random lottery, you know? Once I saw a big line outside the tattered cover, I was working in Lodo and I said, what's that for? And they said, uh, well, there's an author signing a book. I said, who? They said, Senator Barack Obama. I said, well, I do oh an afternoon radio show. Can I come in? They said, well, let me see your press pass. They gave it to me and I got seated right in front of them. And then I waited and watched everybody go through the line. That was a memorable day. And I've interviewed some athletes, like I've asked uh, John Elway and Peyton Manning questions, but the guy who kind of had an aura about him, and you probably dealt with Tim Tebow, 
that was just different talking to him. What's your memory of that? Did you ever speak with Tim Tebow? Only once, because by then, by the time Tebow was with the Broncos, and he was only here a short time, of course, and he was such a phenomenon, I was only filling in and doing part-time Broncos coverage. Uh, and I think I interviewed Tebow once. And he was a charismatic guy. I'll, I'll say that for him. I, I didn't think he was much of a quarterback. I never really did think he had a chance to be much of an NFL quarterback. But it, there was a charisma to him, and he was certainly a guy who who knew what he was all about. and. Uh, that came off for sure. Well, this interview has come off spectacularly. I cannot thank you enough, Patrick Saunders. Really appreciate it. On your day off, and give my best to your family, please, and see if Steve wants to play one on one. I'll do that. I'll ask him for sure. Hey, Craig, thanks. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Hey there, I'm not going to take a lot of your time. I've been a lawyer almost 40 years. My brother was a lawyer, my father a Denver lawyer, my grandfather a Denver lawyer. If you have a legal problem, call me, 303-861-2800, 303-861-2800. If I'm not the right lawyer for you, I bet I know somebody who is. 303-861-2800. Thank you. Hey, folks, I urge you to go to MichaelBaileyLawLLC.com. You will see what a handsome dude Michael Bailey is. Michael Bailey helps people proactively plan for their legal needs, including current needs and future legal and financial protection. He understands that physical limitations can also prevent good people from equipping themselves with the legal protection they need because leaving the house may not be as easy as it used to be. That's why he calls himself the mobile estate planner because he will come to you. Give him a call. He's easy to talk to. 720-730-7274, 720-730-7274 for your end of life legal planning Hired the lawyer that Trish and I hired, Michael Bailey. Find him online at michaelbaileylawllc.com. Sandler Training is one of the leading sales training and leadership development companies in all the world. If you're interested in increasing your win rates and revenue margins, increasing the number of salespeople exceeding quota, addressing sales manager professional development, reducing your turnover of sales personnel, it's all waiting for you at Sandler Training. Call my pal Dan Levitt at 303-829-2107 and tell him Craig sent you. Hey, Danny, what happens if somebody calls and says, hey, Craig sent me? Well, Craig, for the first few minutes, we'll probably tell some jokes about you. What? Yeah. And then I'll dig into, you know, what what's going on in their world and whether or not I'm a fit for what, you know, might, might be able to help them or not. He's an easy guy to talk to. I've been talking to him for so many decades. Dan Levitt, 303-829-2107. Dan Levitt, 303-829-2107. Puts 303-829-2107. Sandler Training, it could really help you. Thank you, Danny Levitt. Now back to The Craig Silverman Show. So there you have it. Wow, the way this show came together. 
So many news stories. Proud to bring it to you, beginning with Daryl Sinquanta, the blue chameleon. I love this story about perseverance. You can't shoot a cop and then escape from prison and escape justice. Daryl Sinquanta, he got the last word, or is it? Let's see what happens next. Spencer Coven, he's a buddy from the Cosby days. Not that long ago, he's in on the action when it comes to representing victims in celebrity cases that so often involve South Florida. Thank you, Spencer Kubin, for coming in Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. Hans Meyer, your first visit. What a terrific Colorado immigration attorney, Hans Meyer. He wins. He's a winner, and he's got perseverance, too. Just like the Saunders family. I knew Dusty Saunders. He's still alive doing great. DustySaunders.com. His kids have done him proud. Patrick, who covers the Rockies, thanks for the extraordinary interview. More than anything, I want to thank my sponsors and my audience. Please tell people you know. Push this podcast to them on social media. We are getting better all the time. Wait till next week. I have a guest who's a statewide official and a world-famous writer. Tune in to Twitter. Craig S. Colorado, that's my handle. I will keep you apprised of my guests. Follow me on Facebook. Share it with your friends. Thank you. Have a great week. Thank you for listening. Tune in live every Saturday morning, 9 to noon, Mountain Time. Visit thecraigsilvermanshow.com for the podcast, blog, and more. Be sure to subscribe on all major podcasting platforms to be updated when new episodes are available. This has been The Craig Silverman Show.